0: next chapter podcasts.
1: Hey y'all, I'm Otis Pickett, the university historian at Clemson University and a man of faith based here in Clemson, South Carolina. Welcome to Purpose That Prevails, a podcast about faith, religion, and walking a faith-based life. On the show, we're going to be joined by both believers and scholars, leaders in the fields of education, history, and religion. My hope is that you find these conversations inspiring, and maybe you and I will even learn a thing or two along the way. Before I introduce my guest for this week's episode, I'd ask that you subscribe, rate, and even review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you've stumbled upon the show. Please also tell your friends, family, and pastors about it as we'd love to get support and get the word out. Okay, now to my guest for this week. It brings me great joy to introduce today's guests, Dr. Susan Glisson and Dr. Jennifer Bingo Gunter. I am honored to have Dr. Susan Glisson here today. She's been proclaimed by both Time Magazine and Southern Living as a hero of the New South in the civil rights era. Susan is an icon in the world of civil rights for more than 30 years of work in racial healing in the American South, especially in the state of Mississippi. Her work has been highlighted since the 1990s when she spearheaded an initiative supported by then-President Bill Clinton that encouraged the University of Mississippi to create an institute to promote racial reconciliation and civic renewal. Dr. Glisson has a PhD in history from the College of William & Mary, is the founding executive director of the William Winter Institute for Racial Reconciliation, is currently the executive director of the Glisson Group. A consulting firm that cultivates racial healing and serves as executive director of the welcome table collaborative a highly successful community engagement program that is now practiced across the country dr jennifer bingo gunter and she really does go by bingo is a civil rights dynamo who has done incredible work in racial healing in the south over the last 20 years much of it alongside her mentor dr susan Glisson. bingo holds a phd from the university of south carolina where she currently serves as the director of the Collaborative on Race at the university. Bingo is the only person other than Susan trained in the Welcome Table Collaborative curriculum. In 2023, both Susan and Bingo helped to organize a very special event that brought together descendants of all races of the former Confederate General Robert E. Lee to Arlington National Cemetery and by doing so promoted racial reconciliation. As one of Susan's blessed mentees, like Bingo, I am honored to have both Susan and Bingo on the show today, with hopes that we can hear Susan's amazing wisdom and share stories about what Bingo, myself, and so many others have learned from this amazing woman. Please welcome Dr. Susan Glisson and Bingo Gunter to Purpose That Prevails. Hey, y'all. How are y'all doing today? I've got Dr. Susan Glisson. And I've got Dr. Jennifer Gunter, also known as Bingo. Mm -hmm. And I'm just so excited to have you all on this podcast because you've been such a huge influence in my life. And just gotten to see both of you do incredible work as a student. And it's just really an honor to now be a colleague and to be involved in this work with y'all. So just thank you so much for coming on today. Just means so much.
2: You were always our colleague and our peer, my darling. Always. Thanks for having us always learning together.
1: (laughs) (laughs) They say it always goes back to Mississippi, um, that things kind of start there. And um, that's where I met Susan and bingo. That's where we were in graduate school at the University of Mississippi. And, um, you know, I just wanted if both of you could talk for a few minutes sort of about your journey into this work of racial healing and sort of what is your journey looked like these last few years? Susan, you want to go first?
2: Do you want me to go Uh, first? Bingo, it starts with a B, which is before (laughs) Susan. (laughs) Thanks, Susan.
0: And uh, thanks, Otis. You know, you sent the the questions and I really had to sit down and think through some of them because it's just been part of my life for so long. I didn't know what I was calling it when I was younger, Mm -hmm. but I knew that. But they were teaching me in church, which was, you know, Jesus loves you. Uh, Jesus loves all the little children. God is love. I took that, you know, pretty seriously and even would call out family members when they weren't acting like they were taking me to church to teach me how to act. And I was born in, in Jackson, Mississippi, and I don't actually remember, I don't actually remember knowing that, not knowing that I'm white, because growing up, I was born on on State Street at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, and my family loved to tell me that when they came to see me in the hospital, that they told the staff to bring that white baby out. And so I, that's always just been a story that I knew I didn't really know what to do with it. But um, there's just always been a story that I knew. And then I became uh, what they call a money counter in a bingo hall. Um, my job was counting money. And that's where the nickname Bingo comes from. And I made really good friends with a lot of the guys that worked there. And they all went to Jackson State, which is HBCU. And they were all from Chicago. Uh, but they were um, going to school and working in the bingo hall. And we got to be really good friends. And I took another job at Kenny B's Boardwalk, uh, which is a pool hall um, in South Jackson. And one night, my friends from Jackson State came to visit me. And the next day, I was fired. And I was, you know, it was very blatant to me why I was fired and being myself, I wanted to, you know, hold a protest and march up and down in front of the Kenny B's boardwalk. And my friend said, it's, it's no use. You know, we're used to it. And that kind of ticked me off. And a few years later, I became roommates with a really wonderful human being named Cottrell Terry, um, uh, African-American guy. He is like, y'all know Kramer from Seinfeld? I mean, he's just like Kramer, just weird as he wants to be. And we went to rent a place, and this is in Jackson, and I I met the guy, and he said, come back tomorrow and y'all can sign the lease. And I show back up the next day, and Cottrell's already there, and I see this guy come out, turn around, lock the door, and stand on the porch with Cottrell and tell me that the apartment's not available anymore. And so Cottrell says, we're used to it, right? I'm just used to it. And so I said, well, I'm moving away. And so I moved to California because there are no racists in California. And I was going to go to the land of milk and honey. And I found out real quick <laughs> that it's everywhere. I was just naive. I was, you know, early 20s. But, that, but that's where I learned I was Southern, was living in California. Uh, and so moved back to the South and decided to s- go and study Southern studies uh, to figure out what it was all about. And I'm still trying to figure it out now. So that's kind of the
1: journey. That's thank you so much, Bingo, mm-hmm. because I didn't know where Bingo came from, <laughs> so now I know. there's no secret. That's awesome,
0: mm-hmm. and um,
1: and and we're just kind of thinking about as we're moving in this podcast steps, mm-hmm. little steps that take us in directions in life. Mm-hmm. And thank you just for kind of sharing your first steps, mm-hmm. kind of into this work of recognizing racial injustice, recognizing that there's inequity mm-hmm. and your steps that you took to think about that. Dr. Listen,
2: we're going to go with Susan. Yeah. Susan. <laughs> my steps began before I was born. And as they usually do, they began with my mama who was the daughter of a man named Ernest Jefferson Partridge named for Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy who's, Aunts and uncles, uh, four of them, including a a girl child, was named for Stonewall Jackson. But when my mama was 12 years old, she offered an unsolicited opinion (laughs) to my grandfather about some work they were doing on the house. And he said in front of others that she admired, who asked you? And she said she told herself in that moment that um, whenever she had children, she would never tell them they couldn't speak she would always let them say whatever they wanted to say. And my brothers and I tested that commitment. (laughs) I assure you. But that was a, there was a moment where she, there was cognitive dissonance, right? Between the culture that she was a part of, which said that little girls, especially and children are supposed to be quiet, you're supposed to be seen and not heard. And she knew that there was something wrong with, with that. And I've asked her to, to, to try to explain to me why she then also rejected all the other sort of uh, socialization into whiteness that that it was possible for her to do, given the time period, such that I I didn't know any of that Confederate history. I really didn't know until recently that there was so much I should have known as a historian, but I didn't. There were you talk about those steps, right? There were there were two steps that were pretty crucial once I got here when I was in third grade and y'all have heard this story many times cause I tell it in circles. Um, I had a birthday party just like previous years. Um, in first and second grade, I had invited, you know, all these children to come and I've got pictures of it. Mama made big old sheet cakes and, you know, got out the fancy punch bowl with sherbet and ginger ale, you know, that good stuff. And in first and second grade, I didn't, There were only white kids really in my school, even though we had desegregated, you know, in 1970 in Georgia where I grew up. So those parties were fun and I'm sure I got lots of loot. It was awesome. Um, In third grade, I became friends with a a little girl named Lisa McLeod, who was black. So I invited the same, you know, kids who had come to the first two parties and I invited Lisa. And um, my mama got the sheet cakes ready and, you know, put the tablecloth on the dining room table and got the sherbet punch. Ready and I sat on the porch, waiting for the cars to roll up, waiting for all the kids to get out with presents. That nobody came, and uh, I kept kind of you know I didn't know what was happening. Like I, like I didn't take my cootie shot this week. What did I you know I wasn't wearing the right thing. And I could hear I could hear the phone ringing because Mama had the uh, front door open. I'm I'm a December baby, so she could have the front door open, and I could hear her kind of talking softly to people. And then I could feel her coming and sort of looking out onto the porch from the screen door. the time for the party came and went, and nobody pulled up. And then it finally a car pulled into the driveway, and um, and Lisa got out, and she was she was in this beautiful confection of a dress. I remember, sort of apricot and white ruffles. You know, she was a vision. Uh, I was a tomboy, so already, you know, i already filled. Discombobulated because I don't know where all my friends are, um and then she looks, you know, fabulous. She looks like how my mama would prefer that I dress, uh, and I'm just in my blue jeans or whatever. And I, you know, so she comes over and she hands me this little wrapped present, and I, and I, I think I looked at my mother to sort of, I don't know how to deal with this. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not articulating any of this. I just know that on my face, I'm confused. And don't know what to do. And there are many things that my mother could have said in that moment. There are many things that she could have said as soon as Lisa went home after that party was over. Uh, and and her first choices, given her socialization, certainly would have been. Now, we probably don't want to invite Lisa back to the house. You know, there's probably, you know, y'all might probably don't have a lot in common. You know, whatever the version of it is that, that says you're not supposed to hang out with folks were different from you but what my mama said instead was well that's just more cake for y'all so we ate a lot of cake (laughs) and we we played some board game trouble pop the thing in the middle with the dice i don't know Mm -hmm. um and she gave me a little a little teddy bear pendant i remember so it planted the seed, right, that there was something there was something wrong, either with me, that that's where I took it. Um, maybe, there was, maybe there was something about Lisa that I just didn't understand. But it didn't come clear until a couple of years later in 1977, when my mother sat me down in her bedroom where the only TV was. And she made me watch uh, every night of Roots with her. And I, of course, was horrified. I wasn't learning any of what was happening on the screen in school. And I was heartbroken at how the characters who did not look like me were being treated. And I felt shame because the ones who were treating them badly looked like me. And I, that's probably where the idea of trying to be different started. I didn't want to be like those people. And I started looking for people who could show me a better way to be. Mm -hmm. And that's where, that's where it began.
1: Wow. Thank you both. You know, the more you do this work, you realize how important human relationships are and experiences with human beings in our lives that shape how we care for our neighbor and love our neighbor. And your mom sort of modeling To you this is how we love our neighbor Mm -hmm.
2: the the most the most troubling part of that whole birthday story was that the people who were calling at the last minute to give her some excuse about why their Mm. kids couldn't come were the folks that we went to church with Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that created a question in my mind just like bingo had about the songs that they were teaching us to sing and the I'm a Matthew 25 kind of person. And uh, that didn't feel feel very much like Matthew 25.
1: Hmm. So you have this kind of um, history, this long history in this country of the ways in which Christianity has kind of capitulated to the culture or has been captive by the culture. And yet we're kind of called to a different way to live in Christianity. and. I was wondering if, um, you know, a lot of our listeners are people of faith, uh, who want to take steps in a very difficult time in our country to take steps. And I was wondering if you could speak, both of you mentioned this, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about the role of faith in your journey and has, has your faith or your examples of, of working with faith communities, what have you seen?
0: And I've been in this work just for five years now, officially here in South Carolina. And from my experience, and I've only worked with a few churches that were more integrated. But the the ones that I worked with that were basically all white will only, in my experience, go so far. And by that I mean they will do a little learning, right? They'll 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 dig a little bit. Uh, but when it came to me asking for more time for them to spend together in conversation with each other, everyone's just too busy. You know, everyone's just uh, they, they don't have the time for it um, or can't find the time for it. So, I mean, that's my experience as of now. And I'm, I'm sure Susan probably has something different.
2: You know, as much as uh, it was disturbing to sort of learn later that the the parents of my friends were the ones who, you know, made excuses to not come to my party, the over time, actually, those folks left my church, mm-hmm. partly because the little Baptist church that I grew up in uh, that I'm still a member of um, was was fairly, fairly radical um, on on racial issues, on gender issues. Um, in the 1950s, the the pastor that baptized me, John Miller, um, got death threats because he encouraged um, black families to send their kids to vacation Bible school. My mother was ordained as a deacon in the early 70s, um, and there were people who were quite angry at our church for for that. Um, so, there there was a way in which there were there were people who tried to live what I thought they were teaching teaching me um in that in that church and so i grew up in a household and in a church understanding that that faith was meant to be oppositional to the larger culture Hmm. Uh, even if it even if it hurt even if it cost you friendships and it was because of that that when i started to look for colleges i went to mercer university which was you know a uh, Baptist-founded uh, university in Macon, Georgia, and I was still on this journey to find a way to make a difference—to to not be like the people I'd seen in those images on that on that TV screen that had so horrified me when I was ten. And so I signed up for my very first religion class uh, as for my major. Um, they called it Christianity there because some donor gave a lot of money and. Made them call it Christianity, but um, my my professor once told me to don't tell people it was called Christianity because they probably think I was a little nutty, and that tells us something about what folks think about Christianity today. <laughs> um, but I signed up for a class with a man named Joe Hendricks, who uh, was teaching the Old Testament, and uh, he was an icon on campus. It has, he was called Papa Joe by everybody because he was this avuncular. You know the epitome of loving kindness, but he was also fierce social justice warrior. And he um he really he'd been at, you know, he'd been at Mercer as a, as a student, and and really kind of spent his whole career there. But he really forced the Mercer to desegregate before the the courts made them do so. So he, he'd been kind of both loving on on one hand, but also de- demanding that 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 we live out what we say we believe, uh, and being kind of the moral compass for for Mercer and I immediately you know was drawn to him and there was a little group of us that, that became close with him and so I, so I I had an example of a person who looked like me huh. right who showed me that there was a way that that I could I could do things to to change um, the existing system that was inequitable and oppressive huh. and that alone would have been enough but his best friend was a man named Will Campbell who was, uh, you know, a chaplain at the University of Mississippi, uh, um, 50, 53 to 55, and was run off because he was an integrationist. And it, when I was a sophomore in college, uh, we we read Brother to a Dragonfly, the, the book that Will mm-hmm. re- maybe is most known for, um, never been out of print, published in 1977. Lots of good things happened in 1977. And that book was really powerful to me because I had gotten just enough education as a freshman, you know, to think that I was way better than the rest of my family. You know, I just thought of them as backwards and racist. And mm. and there was some truth to that for me, too.
1: So we've talked about continued ways in which we see Christianity in the church sort of conforming to things. But one thing that's so amazing about the two of you if you is you've been on this journey for so long, like bingo, you said five years, but come on. I mean, you've been at this for a long time and Susan as well. And as you've been pushing forward, what would you say are some lessons that you've learned along the way that for someone who may be listening, who's like, Hey, I was really into this and it just kind of got in a place where it was too much, it just cost me too much. I didn't have the time. Um, I got pushback. I got family resistance. Um, What would you say are just kind of some lessons you've seen in your uh, 20, 30 years of of being at this?
0: Well, you got to be willing to lose your job. You know, I mean, I've lost a couple of jobs because of what I believe in. I didn't talk to my family for a long time and I was christened in the Episcopal church. Um, like Susan, I went to a really radical church in Jackson was, um, St. Colum's Episcopal church. I'm s- still a member. My mom was the first female, um, lay minister. I was the first female acolyte and they were, they were pretty radical and people left there because of women being able to serve and, you know, current issues or, um, issues of, uh, Uh, gender rights uh, specifically trans rights um, Mm. are having some issues in the church but then on the other side my dad's parents were very very conservative southern baptists it's just what are you willing to give up Mm. right so i have privileges i and um as a white person i i i think there's things we have to sacrifice and we have to make time but that's you know you know, there's people that won't talk to me anymore because of that. Hmm. And I just have to be okay with that.
1: Hmm. What do you think, Susan? Um, some lessons that you would share with the audience about just kind of your, what you've learned in this journey. I
2: mean, there's, there's a, there's a way in which we, we cling to these things that actually don't serve us, that actually Ooh. don't feed our spirits. And, and part of the reason that I, that I want to be a part of this work is because it feeds my spirit. I know that I'm part of something that's never going to die, uh, that makes me feel welcome, that, that, that makes me feel uh, connected to other human beings um, it, who in my darkest hour have been there with me. Not, not some of those folks who are worried about what party they're getting invited to. So um, a lesson would be to sort of, I think, ask yourself, what's your allegiance is to? And and is it really feeding you? And the consequences of not asking ourselves those hard questions are quite evident in our society. I mean, just yesterday, I was reading a couple of articles in Atlantic Magazine, and one was about trying to unpack sort of wh- why we are so fearful.
0: Oh.
2: And the other one was about sort of why there appears to be very little trust, both in institutions and in, and in each other. Hmm. And they're tied to each other. Right. The quality of our relationships reflects in our society. And when the quality of our relationships is poor, when Hmm. we don't when we when we don't take the risk to trust people who, you know, maybe we think we've been told they're they're different from us or, you know, in some way less than us. uh, It reflects in this larger breakdown. Hmm. So and then, you know, throw in the easy access to weapons And uh, you have a, you have a, you have a cauldron. And so how can
0: we move folks from, I feel love Mm. for my neighbor and for myself to, I act love. And what does that look like?
1: That is a great, that's, that's the perfect question to lead (laughs) us into our next question. (laughs) Oh gosh. (laughs) So um, a lot of times, like Susan, you were saying, like, it was great to have a model of someone at Mercer. Right. Um, and so Susan, for me, when I was a graduate student at the University of Mississippi, I was looking at you as a model in Mississippi of someone who looked like me from the South, loved Will Campbell, loved people. Um, and you're going into places like Philadelphia, Mississippi, where civil three civil rights workers are murdered in nineteen sixty four. And you're going into Money, Mississippi, that's still wrestling with the legacy of Emmett Till's murder. And you're going into places like Macomb, and you're hosting these national conversations on race with John Hope Franklin uh, and William Winner. And the what 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 are you seeing in these examples of working in these communities and bingo? your work in the collaborative on race at the university of South Carolina and working in places like Lawrence and working in places like Columbia and now in Charleston and now in Clemson with me, what what are some things y'all are seeing that folks could like attach onto as an example, a tangible example of what racial healing looks like and the outcome of that in communities?
2: Uh, We don't have enough time. Um, <laughs> we did we <laughs> um, well, you know, perhaps for me, when things really began to shift was was being invited into Neshoba county, um which um served a little bit as a sort of Mississippi for Mississippians, um mm-hmm. if the rest of the country sort of treats Mississippi as a scapegoat, you know, as long as we're better than Mississippi, um we're we're okay. um Neshoba county served that served that function. I was warned by black folks in the Delta, not to go to Neshoba County, that it was dangerous. And that was the thing, that it was a community in, in fear and a community in suspicion, but that had a deep hunger, like we all do as human beings for connection. And when someone had the courage to step up and do the right thing, then people could see that it was possible. Uh-huh. Healing comes in hearing each other's stories and in, in coming to believe each other matters uh, and then in being able to tell the larger truth to the community and trying to do some repair, based on what that those histories have done to to keep their communities apart. In the weeks after, in the weeks after, Philadelphia was able to push for a, a trial that 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 ended in a in a prosecution for that man who got to eat breakfast at Dots every day. Uh, they elected the first black mayor of the community, of the majority white town of seventy five hundred. He happened to be a member of the Philadelphia Coalition. He's been reelected every year every year that there's an election since and that was 2005. Um, they reordered the way they spent public money so that say for instance black folks didn't find out about something in the newspaper that was going to affect their community. They were actually brought in and a part of the conversations about what how money was going to be spent in their communities. The little league teams desegregated mm-hmm. uh, and the two high schools, right, the, the the predominantly black high school in the city, Philly, Philadelphia High, uh, and the and the predominantly white high school in the county because of white flight in the Shobo Central. Uh, both had two homecoming queens, and in the in the year after uh, Edgar Ray Killen was sent to jail by his by his peers, the kids came to their parents and said, "This is ridiculous. You know, why are we why are we allowing these sort of um, essentialized, false definitions of uh, human identity to to characterize who we are and what we ought to be about?" And they said, "We weren't. We're not. We're not doing this two homecoming queen thing anymore. We can have a whole other conversation about homecoming queens, but." <coughs> But that first year uh, after after killing went to jail, Philly Philly High, which had which was a predominantly black school, elected a white homecoming queen, and Shoba Central, which was predominantly white, elected <sighs> a black homecoming queen. And that's what happens because the children turn around and said, "Well, our parents are doing the right thing. We we've got some thoughts about how to do that too." Hmm. There are people
0: that are standing up. Um, Maybe they don't get the the kind of recognition because mm-hmm. it's not as uh, buzzworthy or it's not clickbait. It's not the Met Gala, right? So they don't get the kind of attention. But I do want to bring up that there is data that supports that racial healing makes us live longer.
2: Mm-hmm. What I love about what you do, uh, Otis, and what you do, Bingo, is, is that you want to tell those stories that That people know that they they aren't alone that 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 they care about having their community become better,
0: and I do firmly believe in re- the idea of restorative justice, where someone who has done harm is held accountable, and the community figures out together how that person can atone mm-hmm. and And you know that's the opposite of punitive justice, which I think we can maybe agree doesn't really work. And the other thing I've learned is that you really need to l- listen to the community. It doesn't matter how well-educated you are or how well-intentioned you are or how many studies you've read. You don't know what they need, and, and they do.
2: And it is about maybe going into a space in, in our history that has shaped how we are and why we are and doing some of the work there
1: Mm.
2: where it may be a little easier because none of us were alive. James Lawson always says, nobody alive today created racism. We can go back to those origins of it and then start to trace it forward and see how it shaped uh, our opportunities and our uh, limitations today. Mm. And that's where we can start to talk about uh, accountability. And we can start to talk about systems and structures and how those things have been inherited over time too. So that we, we need, we, we just, uh, the, the simplicity of what it takes to do this is, is, is love and persistence and accompaniment, but the conversations we need to have are deeply complex and we can do both because we can do hard things.
1: Mm. And it does require, I mean, it requires simple day-to-day living and it also requires some expertise. It requires some reading. It requires some study. It requires some listening uh, and, and failing. Right.
2: And getting up and keeping doing it. Yep.
1: Um, and it's okay to fail with people that love you.
0: God, I hope so. Absolutely.
1: Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, You know, and so we, we kind of think about, and we'll, you know, we think about the Christian life and it's this journey, right? It's a, it's a, a pilgrim's progress, for lack of a better term. And at different stages in life and different seasons in life, you're able to do different things. And and as I'm thinking about like different steps forward, we have different listeners who are in just different places. Some people, this may be an introduction and y'all are planting a seed. And some people may have had the seed planted and someone's watering it now. And we may have folks who that watering has turned to growth and has experienced some drought. Uh, And so there's some decay. Uh, So we have people who are new to this, people kind of who've gone into this a few times and have gotten burned. And then folks who maybe even veterans of this that have been doing this for 20 years who are just like, I can't anymore. Um, What advice would y'all give for people on those different three stages of their journey. And maybe that's not just the three stages. Maybe there's a lot more stages, but Bingo, you want to start us off with that?
0: If you're in the choir and your voice gets tired, you let the choir carry you. Mm. You rest your voice. Um, You're not out there alone. Find your people. Mm. Right. So. Otis, you know, you call me when you have a question. I call you when I have a question. Susan calls me. You know, we're not alone. We're and we're not what we're dealing with. Somebody else is probably also mm. dealing with it or have dealt with it. Um, so use your connections. Um, yeah, I think that's that's where I am now.
2: The only thing that I would add to that beautiful answer is, um, I, I really love um, the work of, of Deepa Iyer. Um, you can go Google her. Uh, she talks about the ecosystem of social justice, which is that you know there are there are a variety of roles that need to that need to happen, and we cannot all do all things. We are not c- capable of that. Uh, you know we have we have particular gifts and and skills that 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 we brought into the world or that we learned in the world. Um, and so we we need to be very clear what what our role needs to be, and that role may change over time. Mm. Everybody has got a role to play, and everybody's got to do something. Mm. And I promise you there's a role for you. Mm.
1: Mm. Amen. Well, let's close with this. What's the hope? What do we hope to get to? It may be we see something in our lifetime. It may be that we pass it on to another generation sort of the frustration I've I've realized getting into my forties now is that my twenties thought my twenties Otis thought everything could be fixed by my thirties <laughs> and my forties Otis is realizing I'm having to train my children that it may come, come 50, 60 years, maybe further down. But what's the end goal?
0: Shoot that we're done, that we've, we've healed. I mean, that the end goal is, um, that everybody can send their kids off to school without worrying about them coming home. And when they come home, they're gonna have a nice meal and a good bed to sleep in that everybody is completely taken care of. That's that's the end goal. And I do think it I think it will happen.
2: T- two weeks ago tonight, I, I I stood in a little church in Arlington, Virginia, and I watched the great-great-granddaughter of Robert E. Lee and the great-great-granddaughter of Selena Gray Hug. They had not been in person together before they had only seen each other virtually. And one was the granddaughter of a woman that was owned by the wife of the other. And surely when I started out in this work, if you had told me that that was possible, there would have been beyond what I could hope for. And knowing that it can happen and knowing how it happens, then I know we can get to a a place where that's happening all the time. I know we can. You cannot tell me that we can't because I have Mm -hmm. seen it.
1: And wouldn't it be beautiful if it were manifest? (laughs) Let's do it. Across our country. Let's do it. Right. We
2: We got to dream it.
1: You got to dream it. And you got to try to tell others about how you've seen it. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's real. And it's a real possibility. And I just think I may be wrong, but I think folks are just sick of hating on one another. I think they are too. I think we just, man, we're we're so divided. And why do that?
2: When instead we could be arguing about who has the best potato salad recipe. That's way (laughs) more fun. Deviled eggs. Hey,
1: hey you talking my language now. Listen,
2: I had sweet tea in Harlem in New York City the other night. I didn't think that was possible. You could have some good sweet tea outside the South. Anything's possible.
0: <laughs> well, when I lived in California, they put a wedge of a honeydew melon on the side of my tea that was um, mango flavored. And I said, I don't know that I could make it here.
1: Mm-hmm, don't be doing that with my sweet tea.
2: Well, they, they did deep fry the deviled eggs. That's a whole other conversation. <laughs> oh, dang. <laughs>
1: Um, Dr. Susan Glisson, Dr. Jennifer Gunter, I want to tell you both what just amazing friends you are. Thank you for your examples. Thank you for sharing your stories today. I know it's hard to kind of share stories, um, but it really means a lot to me. It means a lot to our listeners. It means a lot to just as we're moving forward as a country, your examples. And thank you for pressing in thank you most of all that I can text and call and be Otis and mess up and you're still my friends and, um, and what you've taught me. Um, And so I just really appreciate you both so much for being on today.
2: Absolutely. My pleasure. I'd I'd be anywhere. The two of you are. Mm -hmm. And if I, if I may close with the, with the end of a poem, right? Marge Piercy's the low road. It starts when you care to act. It starts when they tell, you no. It starts when you say we and know who you mean, and each day you mean one more, Mm -hmm. and you are both my we. Mm -hmm.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Purpose That Prevails. If you've made it this far, I hope this means this conversation was thought-provoking and lights your path on this walk of faith we're all on together. A reminder, please spread the word about the show to your church community, your family, your friends. Every bit helps. If you would be so kind to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to the podcast, that would be much appreciated. It's been a pleasure for me to host the show and spend this time with you. My name is Otis Pickett. Until next time, God bless.